Matt McInerney, New York. Andy Mangold, Baltimore, Maryland. Dan Auer, San Francisco. Every week, the three of us call in and record a conversation about the larger scope of design and everything related. Here we go. So uh, welcome to the second episode, first to-be-released episode of On the Grid. Uh, we're podcasting directly from inside a convection oven in the Northeast. Uh, I, I assume it's 4,000 degrees where you are, Matt. It's about 4,000 degrees down here in Baltimore. I would say more uh, toaster oven. It's a little more moderate in New York, a little more yep. moderate. And, uh, and Dan, you're on the West Coast, so I assume it's positively moderate out there, right? Yeah, it's an unbearable 60 degrees. <laughs> Poor guy. You guys do anything this week? See any movies? What's up? <sighs> Nothing exciting. I have some friends from uh, high school that visited this weekend, uh, sort of on a whim that I haven't talked to in like four or five years. So that's always interesting, you know, the old old friends from way back coming to visit. So you have do you have nothing in common? And you talked about the weather for a while. Oh, more or less. It, more. It was funny because they were they were shocked that I now identify as like a Baltimorean. Like I have a Baltimore Orioles hat, and they're like, "We we doing rooting for Baltimore?" Like from Philadelphia. I'm like, I don't haven't been there in five years. I don't identify with that place anymore. I'm, I'll probably be a New Yorker for a while, but I don't think I'll ever switch allegiances from Massachusetts teams having grown up there. You can't yeah. do it. You'll be murdered. It's just yeah. not acceptable. <laughs> my, my sports my sports allegiances were never that strong. So and, and honestly, like I don't even care about the Orioles either. I just like having I like sports as an excuse for civic pride. Right, like, I, I like the city. Don't particularly care about the baseball team, but I'll wear the hat because it's. It, I can wear something that says Baltimore on it. I look like a tourist. So. Well, well, to uh, be fair, nobody likes the Orioles, so you're you're in good company. This is that, true. Yeah, I, I thought we were doing well in the beginning. I, I hear things through the grapevine. I have no idea how they're doing. Uh, I assume they're, they're they're hitting that baseball, running them bases. You know, doing all that stuff you do when you play baseball. A lot of touchdowns, a lot of field goals, the basics yeah. of baseball, right? Yeah, exactly. Ton, of course. Tons yeah, of three yeah. pointers. I actually like the uh, I like the topic of of civic pride via sports. I'm seeing this a lot in uh, in New York with the brand new uh, Nets logo being announced. It's just it's amazing how many people really quickly pick that up as a symbol of Brooklyn. You see a lot of Nets hats walking around, and it's interesting yeah. to realize that 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 hat can't be more than a month old. Like this is this is now your identity, but as of Thursday, it seems like it's one of the only times when like a top down like branding really works and catches on on like a grassroots level. Like in most other instances, you can't like spend millions of dollars coming with a thing and then just printing it out on t-shirts and giving it to people and having them actually identify with it. But but the the great human drama of sports seems to, you know, make that attainable. Yeah, it seems to work. Um, Well, the reason I think this one seems to work too is that it's new. There was nothing there before. If it were replacing a thing, Ah, it would be blood in the streets. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. If you tried to, if you tried to place the New York Yankees NY, you'd be murdered. Lots of murdering the, uh, this morning slash afternoon. Look, it's it's hot up here in the Northeast, Dan. People are people are on edge. There's just <laughs> it's rough. There's kind of two thoughts going through your mind: air conditioning and murder. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, so thankful to have air conditioning right now. Also, like I think something like twenty percent of Baltimore lost power in this recent electrical storm, and so that many people didn't have AC, which oh, is a nightmare. I'm so we're so so that's, lucky to have not. That's been in almost that as bad as Instagram going down. Yeah. Yes, almost. Very nearly. Yeah, you, you can't power goes out. A bunch of old people die of heat stroke, but it's not as bad as you know people not being able to see their friends' photos on Instagram. Well, you can't take a picture and put it on Instagram of your AC unit not working. That's true. Because how how are people? How else know? are you going to? How else are you going to get the news misery? Yeah. It was funny to see people's reactions to you know obviously every time something goes down, people whine and bitch about it a whole lot. But I didn't even realize those things were down because it happened like on Friday night, you know Friday night Saturday morning where most people are living their lives. 
So, like, honestly, the, the complaining was less than I expected it to be. Like, it was nowhere near as bad as the complaining if, like, Gmail goes down for an hour on Tuesday in the middle of the day. Then it's, like, a shit show. But it was, seemed that people were just... Most people were living their lives, which is actually kind of a, a nice encouragement. Yeah. I felt good about well, it. I mean, that, that's perfect hangover time. You know, that sort of thing. Because you're either drunk or hungover. There's a, uh, there's, a, there's a local bar here in Baltimore in my neighborhood that does something called the Inception Bomb. What? Uh, that my, yeah, my, my buddies from high school found out about it. They went on a mission to do it last night. It's, it's a pitcher of, I think, so I, let's see if I get this right. It's a pitcher of orange juice and vodka. Mm-hmm. And then in, inside of that pitcher, you balance two glasses. One has Red Bull in it and one has beer, I think. Uh, and then inside of one of those glasses, you balance two shots and one has two shots of, like, Jaeger, and one's got some other crazy shit. Anyway, you, you take the first shot, and then the second shot that was balanced drops into the one glass. And then you take that glass, and that glass drops into the pitcher, and you drink. It ends up being, like, four or five shots over the course of one, you know, 30-second mistake. Is it actually 30 seconds, or is that time compounded as you continue to do the shots? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know. I Actually, I didn't go out with them last night, so I'm not sure how long it took. I've never seen it done, but... Uh, I've heard the tales, the tall tales of it. It seems like a pretty good way to get fucked up pretty quick. Coincidentally, you may also end up in the ocean at the end. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're all saying uh, they, they had to get the kick afterwards, and that was when they vomited it back up. Wow. Your friend throwing you in the ocean, screaming, Calm down, man. Get together. <laughs> exactly. That's the kick. All right, let's take it to the top of the dock. What we do every week is we uh, we edit a Google Documents um, a Google Documents? A Google Doc. We put our favorite articles at the top. We call that the top of the doc. Big news this week was Google I.O. So I'm going to give it to Dan to tell you a little bit about Google I.O. and what we learned. Yeah, yeah. It was actually a big thing over here because, you know, like Moscow Center and all that sort of stuff is like down the street. But it was, it was this crazy thing where they're, you know, announcing uh, Jelly Bean, which is the, the newest version of the Android OS. Uh, but they also introduced the Google Glasses, which are supposed to become like a real thing now. And, you know, some other stuff like like the Q, which is a ball that's supposed to do stuff for your living room. Uh, but the big, big news was Google Glasses. And it just like it. It's amazing that something that you would put on your face that's like to me almost like uh, an upgraded Bluetooth ends up being something that people are going to pre-order for something like $1,500. I saw that. Yeah. The demo, I think the demo model was $1,500. If you want a beta version of this thing, Yeah. which to be fair, it is for developers only, right? It's not, they're not aiming at consumers with this. I would hope not because you could buy an iMac and strap that to your back for less money. That's a good point and a really good idea too. Good point, Dan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but yeah, no. Perfect I, design solution. <laughs> I'm assuming they're going to have to subs- uh, subsidize this at some point, though. I'm sure like iPhone beta type uh, prototypes were were wildly expensive too, and then they found a way to bring the price down. Be working with some company to subsidize, or by making more and making it cheaper. Mm-hmm. I, I assume this price tag isn't going to stick. Yeah. Like, I, someone on Twitter said something that was struck really strongly with me. I said that like Google Glasses was pretty much exactly the same as Segway. Um, which I think is actually a really good like analogy. Because remember when Segway came out, people were like, oh, it's the way of the future. No one's going to walk anymore. Why would you walk when you can scoot on a weird little Segway? Uh, and in reality, like the thing is still you know, prohibitively expensive, and it hasn't caught on except for in a few niche markets. It has caught on in like, you know, law enforcement and you know, in some mall sort cops. of Lots of mall like, cops. fashion. Yeah, mall cops have them. I know that there's, like, a, there's this places that have like, touristy Segway tours of like, you know, a city. There's a there's a place in Baltimore called Segs in the city. Like yeah, Sex we had city. we fun. had that in Savannah too when Dan and I, when I were down there. Was uh, 
Segway Tours of Savannah, which mm. w- uh, was actually very funny because watching tourists on Segways, that you should sell tickets just for that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's pretty... One of my favorite things to watch on online is just Segway crashes because people are so convinced <laughs> they can never crash them and then all you got to do is hit a little bump and the whole thing like shuts off and the gyroscope stops working and people just face plant. Oh, with oh, all the, the cobblestone in Savannah too. I mean, that's just... That's it is an accident waiting to happen. It's not good news for anyone. Yeah, then you get trampled by a horse who's giving another tour. Um, it's just a mess. And then and then they have a brand new ghost tour. Oh, <laughs> the ghost of all the people that got <laughs> killed in Segway accidents. Yeah, Andy, I don't know if you've ever been down to Savannah, but one of the big uh, major tourist attractions is all the ghosts of Savannah, and they'll give ghost tours in. Uh, in like hearses and they'll take you to all the cemeteries that's an interesting sales pitch for savannah savannah georgia a lot of important people died here <laughs> yep and their souls never left <laughs> all thanks to butter but uh but but back to that to the google thing i, I watched uh, a chunk i didn't see the entire like keynote or whatever it was where they announced it i watched the beginning intro where they like had you know the glasses coming in mission impossible style through all the various extreme sports and yes. like the rappelling down the side of the building they watched um, a lot of Iron Man before coming up with that presentation. Oh, but it was but it was it was so clearly like a bunch of nerds watched Iron Man and then said like, "Oh, we got to hire some people to do this" because it was so awkward. Like the way <laughs> the guy was like in the like auditorium talking over the entire thing while it was happening. Yeah. And then the best part was go back and watch this if you didn't catch it. But the high five he gets from like the, the guy that bikes down the aisle and onto the stage is oh, fantastic! It was like the one of the best high, high five. One really? of the best high fives I've ever, I've ever witnessed. Uh, it was so beautiful because just like you know, nerdy guy that made some cool glasses and wants to be friends with the extreme sports. It, it made me think like all all we're doing in technology is still trying to make friends with the jocks. You know, it's like yeah. it's funny. I had that exact same thought. Is at the end of the day, you're still the nerd from high school, and he doesn't want to be your friend. You can have yeah, billions exactly. of dollars. Yeah, you, you, you can be a billionaire. Would... You just made Google glasses, but this guy riding on a motor, mountain bike down down the aisle of this auditorium is still way cooler than you. And I also think there's probably some hot chick standing outside who still doesn't care. Yep. Yeah, no, not even a little bit. Guaranteed. So Google Glasses, the the idea of wearing glasses on your face that replace your phone, does does this appeal to anyone? Is this um do, do you guys actually think this is cool or did you see this and say, I don't that's interrupting no. like my entire life. I would never do that. Yeah, like my first reaction was, What on earth is the design problem that they're trying to solve? Because like I sit on my phone all day and you know, whatever. Uh but I don't know if I excessively need something that can record audio and video and do all this sorts of other crap without my hands. Because like I'm not that busy. I mean, I guess there is a certain there are a certain number of people that see the need to record everything. Ironically, being said on a podcast recorded for posterity, but um, there are plenty of people who are recording concerts. They're recording uh, little pieces of their life, taking photos of it. I mean, I guess it reduces the friction, but there is also the part where you have to put on a new pair of glasses every day that make you look like you're in Star Trek. Yeah, exactly. It seems like a novelty to me at this point. You know, much like the, the Segway or even like something like Siri. Like, yeah, sure, you could you could argue it's the way of the future, and it's so much easier just to talk to your phone, but I'm not going to talk to my phone in public. Like, that's just never going to happen. And I'm also not going to wear glasses that, you know, make me look like some dweeb and press buttons on them, and I don't know. Like, <laughs> it, it feels like a lot of these things I feel like are guided by visions of the future that we had way before, like, 
modern technology was actually around. Oh, so totally. Like, this, this is a vision of the future that came from an avocado-colored refrigerator. Like, this is um, <laughs> exactly, Jetsons. Yes, yes, precisely. It's like we had this vision, and these nerds for, you know, so many years have been like, oh, we can make this happen now. It's like we can have flying cars, but, oh, wait, flying cars doesn't make any sense. I'm not sure that these, like, you know, glasses with your computer booms makes any sense either. No, I don't. I, I don't think it does. Actually, it's it's funny you brought up the the Siri idea too of people talking to their phone. And while it's cool, it's also funny to me that the entire world has switched over to text messaging because the the friction of using your voice in your phone is like not super practical all the time, um, especially in crowded locations. And now we're going to switch over to talking to our phone all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to happen. I think we've actually become pretty comfortable with using text um, and glasses in the same way. I think we're pretty comfortable using our phone. I don't see people switching to an entirely new device just because it there's a little less friction in the actual use of it well i, I will say no. to the credit of siri just as a side note i it, one time i asked her to send a text to my brother his name is matt and she had mistaken his name for manpower and at that point i said siri you're my new best friend that's his new name the important question is did you have someone named manpower in your address book that got that text message <laughs> i didn't but i do now Okay, good. Dan left left half of that story out. Oh, my. The other thing is, like, the Google Glasses are just taking away, like, there's already so little friction to, like, accessing the internet with your phone in your pocket all the time Mm -hmm. that people are just constantly plugged in and they're sitting at coffee shops, you know, poking away on their phone instead of interacting with real human beings and having actual conversations. I feel like if everyone had glasses on that just, like, popped up push notifications when you got a tweet or an email, they would just be over for society. There'd be, like, no no more human interaction when you can, when everything's just, like, there all the time, popping up into your, like, line of vision. It sounds a lot like Twitter in real life, where it's just a bunch of people screaming out in public, but no, nobody actually talking to each other. It's actually, I was thinking about this the other day. I went to see a movie, and realizing I got there, I don't know, maybe 15 minutes early, and realizing how much effort they're putting into making people stop turning off their phones and paying attention for a second. Mm-hmm. That there's no yeah with something like Google go- uh, not goggles glasses. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> they you, could, you, go to, you go to the movie theater and they're like take off your fancy future glasses. <laughs> but and honestly, they 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 spend a good ten to fifteen minutes just telling you how to turn off your phone. But not all there's there's the like really basic one of please turn off your phone. But then every single ad for every movie there's an integration of please turn off your phone for the love of God you people. You're in a yeah. movie theater. Oh, God. Oh, God, please. Please. <laughs> it's begging. It's really just it, it coming up with clever ways to beg people to please be polite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, 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 not even, it's, it's politeness and also, you know, to give a chunk of time that usually is allotted to only sleeping in our current society to a, a specific thing. Ask someone to pay attention through a movie and not check, you know, one of their various phone things is, is, a, is a tall order these days. It is, and I, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm not guilty of it. I think... I'm, I must be better than most people based on the ads I'm seeing, but uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I'm sure we've all been guilty of it at some point, um, but we do love that street justice of watching the guy get kicked out of the theater for talking on his phone. Yeah. Is there a such thing as prescription Google glasses? Is, is there a chance that like people's actual like optical lenses are going to be worked into these things? I, I guess they would, so. they would have to be at some point or they'll, people will be getting Twitter notifications while bumping into walls. Exactly. Yeah. But it's, I, I just had a horrifying nightmare of somebody whose only glasses <laughs> are Google glasses. So they are, their only choice is to be able to not see or to be plugged in at all times. 
It's like yeah. some terrifying like Ray Bradbury shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure at some point at the presentation they were showing like the the feasibility of them being in like real glasses, and of course the picture, the big you know uh, drop picture that was on the back on the uh, on the screen was like you know some attractive woman with hipster glasses on with this like module lodged onto the corner of it. So there could be that too coming up. The thing we forget though is that um, the, the all the cool stuff they show you in Google Glasses is you know you're getting your notification. It's telling you that the subway is shut down. The part they never threw in is the part where they're going to be advertising on top of your eyes. This yeah. is uh, why. <laughs> yeah, why else would they point. be doing this? They're doing this for advertising. Oh, this is yeah. terrible. Like if I have to walk through like the strip club area, it's going to be like, oh, these are the relevant shows happening right now. You might want to step in. No, I have to go to work. That's a little yeah. creepy. Non-stop neon signs for Google AdWords on your eyeballs. Yeah. Was that? Oh. Wasn't that a Tom Cruise movie at some point? Isn't that part of Minority Report? Is that maybe what that must? That I think that's what it was. I think it was Minority I think, Report. I think it's what happens. This game eyeballs and then crazy stuff you want to see. But it's funny that it's actually even creepier than that. It's it's on your eyeballs. Exactly. It's literally on your. Replacing his eyes will no longer help him. No. I guess you could. I guess if you take the glasses off, it's a lot easier than getting your eyes replaced. <laughs> Andy has a very drastic way of dealing with things. I must <laughs> remove my eyeballs so I'm not advertised to. <laughs> Well, there's, a, there's an article in the uh, Wall Street Journal I'd like to talk about uh, that popped up this week. Um, the title of it was, Your Ebook is Reading You. Did anybody get a chance to uh, read this article or oh, see it? I did, actually, yeah. 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 There's a lot of very interesting implications um, that I hadn't even really thought of. But the, the, the one that's maybe the coolest and the creepiest was the most highlighted sections of a book. And I'd never really yeah. thought of... Uh, of that as, as an angle from the Kindle, but of course it is. They know exactly what you're reading and what you're what you're getting through and what you're giving up on, and what's compelling to you. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting. I, there's a, it's a weird. The whole article struck me as like there's a weird balance between collecting data for interesting and compelling reasons and collecting data in a way that's like gonna pollute culture into some sense. Like when we're building you know, web products, if you're building the next Instagram or Facebook, there's a lot of value in looking at, you know, here's our sign-on process, where are we losing people, you know, we're facilitating some sort of interaction, and how are people being hung up, what's the friction there? Uh, but I don't think you can take that same process and apply it to a book, which is what this article implies in some ways, is that you could take, you could say, oh, people are, you know, stop reading this book at this chapter, so we better, you know, adjust the chapter to make sure people will get through the book. But, it, like, I don't think culture can be so broken down into, like, you know, goals, like get someone through this book, goal accomplished, get them by the next book, goal accomplished. There's something more to be said about like writing a pure piece of culture that's not polluted by how people perceive it necessarily. Well, I yeah. think it, it, it leads to the inevitable like um, network television that's so heavily focused group that everything yes. on it is terrible. Oh, that's why I was going to bring that up. It's the worst. I guess the end result is that all books are two and a half men. Is that how we... <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. No. We end that? Oh, no, nobody loves Raymond. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Hey, I like Fraser. Yeah, I mean, I, you make a good point, though. Like, if, you, if you're collecting data from everybody that's reading or experiencing this book, the, the conclusion is going to be you're going to have less risky books, less books that might offend people. And some of the most, you know, powerful and influential books throughout the course of time have been books that a lot of people hated and were, you know, offended by. But that's part of their value. It reminded me to, you know, consider all different perspectives when developing web products as well because it, everything's a balance between, you know, 
data and statistics, which is like kind of like you know the Google approach to everything, and you know just sort of making decisions for the sake of making decisions, um, which is you know the fine art approach or the you know high design approach, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I think in order to make something that's truly compelling, there's, there's got to be a, a balance there, and you can't just you know focus group and, and data test everything. Well, and I think I think that also gets you into um, uh, lack of innovation too, because if you focus group and data test everything, you can only really get results that currently exist. I don't I don't see how you're you can only get... get a faster horse. Exactly. Um, which was there? I don't know. I just highlighted this quote from an article on Rand's response this week, and it was uh, the future is invented by people who don't give a shit about the past. And I think mm-hmm. the tracking of people, what people are reading, is the exact opposite of that. Not not that they're going to stop tracking it or that they should. But to um, edit books based on that, you're never going to get a more interesting book out of that. Well, there there is kind of like a different viewpoint, though. Say if it was like a technical book or or like an educational book, where you actually there is an end goal at you know the end of all the pages, where you can see like oh people are dropping off at chapter thirty four, uh, where they could see like is, is it too hard or is it too bland for somebody to actually like receive the info that they're trying to learn. Like I could see a benefit in that. I guess so I'm being I, too I, cut I and dry about it, but uh, I'm thinking of it in fiction. But yeah, no, I, that's a good point. You could do it in in tech books where people actually just stop learning because it's poorly written. Yeah, I, I guess you're right. If the book is sort of you know more straightforward and not so much cultural as it is instructional, then there's definitely some value in collecting data there. I mean, it's not to say there's not value in collecting data from you know fiction books, but the thought of adjusting the book or the reading experience based on that data is kind of horrifying. Is it? I guess. I guess. Is it that we're just not used to it, though? Um, I'm not trying to think of being on the other side of it. We're so used to that in every other part of our lives. Is it always purely going to be bad? Are we always going to end up with two and a half men, or could that be beneficial beyond just technical tutorial book? I don't know. I mean, uh, looking at the other places where that does exist, you know, some of the most interesting, uh, you know, like you mentioned network television, and it's the most interesting network television shows seem to be the ones that. Uh, you know, oftentimes get you know shut down, or because because the they're not testing well, or the you know uh, the the big the big wigs in the suits decide that the data is not right for Arrested Development to continue, which if, you know was terrible and upsetting. Mm-hmm. And Arrested Development gets shut down, and you know Two and a Half Men is still going strong. Yeah. Um. I I also think that it sounds like the most snobby thing you could possibly say, but I think that some of the best things uh, can only really be appreciated by a small portion of the population, like. You know, you look at some of the greatest books out there, and there's just a, a huge chunk of the population that's just never going to want to invest the time or the you know intellectual you know uh, intellectual capacity to like appreciate something like that. Um, and it, it would be depressing to have everything that's written you know sort of measured against this you know least common denominator of you know what's popular and what's selling. So I'm, I'm looking at the other side, and now I'm going back to what I was originally saying. If I'm taking this into the context of my own life, if I'm designing something for somebody, the worst possible results are always where you have a large group of people trying to fit it into exactly what everybody wants. You just get a pile of shit as your logo, as your website, whatever it mm-hmm. is. Yeah, and I mean, it's like some of the, especially when it comes to building web products, some of the things that people are going to be, have the least friction to approaching are the least meaningful interactions. Um, like we have, you know, a few apps out there, and the one app that's the most popular is this stupid animated GIF app because we build it in a weekend, and it takes two seconds to make a silly animated GIF. So because of that, you know, it appeals to a much broader audience of people that don't want to spend the time to think about anything or to, you know, focus on something and just want to make a silly GIF that makes them laugh. Right. And there's value in that, but that, that's not the kind of thing I want to do for my entire life. I don't want to continue to, 
you know, pander to an audience that doesn't want to invest, you know, their attention in something. Right. Um, that's, I, 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 that's how yeah, you end I, up with the like button. That's how you end up with the like buttons, how you end up with two and a half men. That's how you end up with a lot of the things that, you know, are by all measurable, you know, all measurable means more popular. Like two and a half men is, if you're going to measure it with data, a much better and more popular television show than something like Arrested Development or 30 Rock. Uh, but, you know, I, if you've seen any of those shows and if you have any appreciation for the art of television, I think you, you'll know that that's not the highest quality content. It's not the best stuff. Mm-hmm. That would be interesting if you could actually test the um, people's not – pe- not people's engagement, but um, <laughs> the, the meaning to people, right? Like yeah. Two and a Half Men is low friction. The like button is really low friction. Mm-hmm. Um, but do they, do they deliver anything back to the person? Do you know what I mean? Does yeah. that give you any meaningful How interaction? How does two and a half anything? men change your life? <laughs> the answer is it does not, right? It's always going to be it does not. Um, yeah. But these these smaller market things, talking about Arrested Development, people will go on and on and on. And I am one of those people about how great it is, about the tiny details that you might have missed the first time around, why it's so much better than something else. I mean, that, why, I mean, that's, that can that's be annoying why too. That's why we've watched but. it seven times. You know, that's why I've watched the entire series five or six times. Right. It has that replay value, but no one's getting that data. No, I mean, I guess Netflix probably knows I've watched it that many times. But So um, I'm the only guy here who hasn't seen it then, right? Yes. Yeah, I've probably watched it like, I don't know, ten times per episode. It's a bit obsessive, but wow. um, it's, it's good enough that you can watch it multiple times, come back to it, and find a new thing in it, which I think is exactly. maybe yeah. the most – those are the most meaningful things that you can – create design you have there, there are multiple elements to it there are multiple layers to it well to be fair matt how many times have you and i gone back and rewatched two and a half men i we honestly just, i've never gotten through an just, entire episode we so. just don't know what, <laughs> what kind of depth is there we haven't given it a chance <laughs> oh goodness um yeah you mentioned that uh, rand's in response article um Matt, with that one coach for me, I thought it was a, it was a really good piece as well. It was uh, it was really interesting to see. The reason I came to it um, was through you know Marco Arment, the developer yes. of Instapaper. He posted it on his blog, and he actually highlighted a totally different part. And the article is called "Someone Who's Coming to Eat You" about kind of you know developing a great product and then skating on that success. Um, mm. And people, I mean, it's not it's not any news to anyone that you know, once you come out with a successful product, your competitors are going to be right behind you and ready to take over. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I thought that tied into a lot of interesting things this week um, because there was also a thing posted on Daring Fireball mentioning the fact that Apple supporting podcasts is basically what killed Odeo. Do you guys remember Odeo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So Odeo was a podcasting web app Um that was basically – it was a directory. I think it was also a place for you to upload. It would deal with your RSS feeds. It was really just a, a web app to promote podcasts when it was a very early medium. Um, and it was developed by Ev Williams, who was one of the founders of Twitter. Then Apple launched the podcast in the iTunes, which already had a huge market. So it took pretty much every podcast uh, away from any other service. Not, mm-hmm. not that they can't also have it, but you know, everybody's central place for podcasting is now iTunes. That essentially killed Odeo, and then Twitter was started, which is really interesting to see the, the, those points in time to say, if can you say possibly that if Apple hadn't supported podcasting, Twitter would not be successful? Yeah, it's one of those things where I, I think you could say that, but I'm not sure how much value there is, and there is so many things that could happen, you know, butterfly flaps its wings and Twitter's born. Um, you always have to bring it back to Ashton Kutcher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I got Kutcher on the mind. Give me a break. <laughs> but I think I think one of the interesting parts about the article is that um, there's really no point in which you can rest and say, well, I've developed a great product and here we go. It's pretty much develop something great, move on to the next thing, develop something great, move on to the next thing because everybody's out to eat your lunch. Somebody's going to come exactly. steal from you immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that's one of the big realizations that you know I think anybody has when they start developing products like that. It's it's not a matter of oh let's finish this thing and go on to the next thing. It's like well if you want that thing to continue to be successful, you have to continue to invest time in it forever. So in, in that sense, it's like you know I know we've had a hard time uh, dedicating any significant amount of time in the long run to any of our products. We haven't found something that we want to work on like for you know the next ten years, and that's really what you have to sort of commit to if you want to have a big chunk of the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and Apple's podcast app was, was kind of depressing to me when it came out. Um, it, it, it's not, I'm not sure if you guys looked at it you know, in depth. It's not a beautiful app. It doesn't seem to, it's really counterintuitive to me in a lot of ways. Um, but I'm sure that their you know, market share is going to be huge. It, it is already, I'm sure. Yeah, and um, so what, despite- yeah, what, what, just to, to give it some context, what Andy's talking about is that we, Apple introduced a new podcast app that separate, separates it from the music in iOS. Mm-hmm. And it's... Um, I don't know. It's not great. It's it's kind of what it would be in the iTunes store. It basically just mixes the functionality of the iTunes store with the current podcast section of the music app. And then, of course, there's a Dieter Rahm's Braun uh, tape deck playing behind the audio, which is always a thing Apple seems he, to do. He must be rolling in his well-designed bed right now because of it. It actually, it really is the opposite of his principles at this point. Yeah, exactly. To just slap everything in. he ever stood for. <laughs> I was, I was even reading a list of his principles today, and it was, uh, it is the exact opposite of that. Putting a picture of an old tape deck in this brand new app that has no need for this to function is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, and, and yeah, I'm sure that podcast app is going to be in the hands of way more people than ever will have touched an actual physical thing Dieter Rams designed. Unfortunately. It's just yeah. the nature of the market now. Yeah. So, like, the yeah, weird but, thing that people think, or at least talk about with that sort of thing, because there's a lot of people that give Apple a lot of shit because they, they basically try to replicate, like, life 20 years ago onto a phone. But it's, like, the people who are actually defending it are like, well, yeah, there's there's a whole lot of people who were giving them the brand new, like, brick of a device, and we have to connect with those people more than, like, you know, the young hip kids who just, like, inherently know how this thing works. So, like, there's supposed to be this connection with people that might not be really tech-savvy. Yeah, I mean, nostalgia and kitsch are both really powerful, again. I I see it, I don't know, I kind of see it in two ways. There is this very powerful connection to the past in, in, like, linking... So let's say on your phone there's an icon of an old handset to represent your phone. I mean, I think that is a really powerful way for people to recognize the functionality of something that maybe doesn't have any physical manifestation anymore. Mm-hmm. But the the application of this in the podcast app serves no function. Like, it's very clear that it's playing audio because it's playing audio, and you don't get to it via, like, an icon of an old tape deck or something. It's still the podcast icon. I don't the know. The podcast that it- never came on tapes. Like, that's, no, it didn't. It's exactly. A it's it's like, a totally new thing. And there, I mean, of course, there are. This happens all the time where we have, like, I don't know, like a folder on a desktop really is just a way for somebody to understand what a folder on a computer is because it never had a – like these things never had a physical manifestation. It's a totally new concept of file mm-hmm. systems and such. Mm-hmm. But it also – it does help in aiding to understand something. This this thing is pure decoration. I don't think anyone's – it's helping anyone understand what a podcast is because there's a tape reel playing behind it. I mean That's you can true. tell me if I'm wrong, but 
Do if you, anything, I think it's kind of confusing what a podcast is. It, the way that the interface works where you sort of like, you can tune in to any one of these stations at any time. It makes it seem like it's something that's being broadcast, which is kind of the exact opposite in a lot of ways. That's true, um, actually. there's not It's not radio in that it's not like you're getting live streams from people and you can listen to it when they're broadcasting it. You download it and you listen to whatever you want. It's very different. Yeah, I, I saw some people uh, tweeting about uh, some other people that make podcasts. They were saying that um, a certain way you can go about it through the podcast app is you, when you find a show and hit play, it just plays like a random show instead of the most recent one, Whoa. which is fine for podcasts that are evergreen and the content you know lasts forever, but it's really you know a huge deal for people that have podcasts that are time-sensitive. If someone that doesn't know what they're doing and is just exploring comes across, you know, some news show and hits play and it plays a show from six months ago. Um, oh, that would be yeah, the worst of it being like six years ago. Like, and today we're talking about the brand new iPod Nano. Yeah, that, <laughs> that would be terrible. I mean, beyond beyond just the issues of of um, what it's what it does poorly. I think what I'm disappointed on is that there are so many problems to be solved in podcasting, something you could design a solution for that just are not being addressed. Yeah. I mean, I think I, the main problem being that people who do podcasts, a lot of people do very high quality podcasts and they don't have any sort of, um, they don't have any sort of economy for this. And you're essentially left to build your own economy. Apple could so easily make an economy for podcasts and it hasn't, I don't know if it just doesn't think it can make any money or if it doesn't really care, but it seems like they, they half-assedly support the idea of podcasting. Mm. And this kind of goes back to the conversation about, you know, what's popular. And podcasts, as, as popular as they can be, are never going to be as big of a market as music. You know, people are – it's just not as broad appeal as a lot of other things are. So for that reason, if you're playing the numbers game, it's not going to get the same kind of attention you're going to pay to, you know, music, for example. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I think there's also this kind of mental disconnect where it's hard to imagine a thing could be paid if it was always free previously – if, if you don't come into the understanding of something being worth money or have, having a value of some sort, it's really hard to attach value to it later. This is, I mean, I think a lot of people are having a really hard time um, making money on it for that reason. If you didn't, like, come into the game with a paid podcast on day one, it's really hard to go back and say, hey, that thing you really enjoyed for free, I want you to pay me for. Yeah, it sounds a lot like that whole the, the app economy where people will download free apps all day, but God forbid on your $600 phone, uh, you buy a 99 cent app, you know, that's sacrilege. It is, it is funny because it's, um, it's such little money. And I don't know, I've, I, there was a comic book I saw a while ago, or like a web comic, whatever I saw a while ago of, um, a person going to Starbucks, buying a $5 cup of coffee, then checking out something on their phone, seeing a 99 cent app and, and being outraged. Oh, I think that was on the oatmeal. That must probably was, but it's something. It, it is that same idea: is that you are so willing to spend money in other areas of your life, but because this idea is somewhat foreign or maybe doesn't have a physical manifestation, mm-hmm. the ninety-nine price tag is outrageous. Yeah, and, and and app economics has really changed a lot of ways people think about things like this. Like for example, I mean, we we've been talking a lot about this amongst ourselves because we are putting out our first paid app in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we've been trying to figure out what to charge for it, which is a huge question. And it's like this is something we've worked on for the past nine months like thousands and thousands of hours we have put into this thing and we're arguing over whether or not it should be like you know two three four or five dollars and it's it's hilarious to me that something that's you know you know nine months of our time and the difference between being two dollars and five dollars would of course change drastically the number of people that buy it and the fact that people would like see it and say oh five dollars it's not gonna be worth that when you know we've poured thousands of hours into it uh is is hilarious but it's just it's just the nature of the fact that it's completely 
infinitely, you know, infinite copies for very little money. It's so easy to distribute it on a massive scale that people have extremely high expectations for extremely, you know, low amounts of money. It's yeah. changed the way people think about products. You know, that that really uh, reminds me a lot of kind of like the, the font making business where a lot of people are honestly like, oh, these things just like they're already on my computer. Why on earth should I pay like $100 for a new one? That's actually a really good point. Um, we're probably pretty used to paying for fonts, but if you're coming from the point of view of somebody who's never paid for a font, why would you think that this thing has value? Um, or it's like, do you guys remember in, in Helvetica when Matthew Carter was talking about it, he referred to it as the font fairy. That's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These things just come out of nowhere and they exist, and why shouldn't they exist, and why shouldn't they be free? Yeah, yeah that's the same conversation I have with clients all the time when it's like, we want to buy this font. Here's why it fits with your brand perfectly. And they're like, why? Like, we already have the alphabet. Why do I need a different alphabet? Like, <laughs> I can already write words. Actually, what is, what is your explanation of that? I'm interested because I have – obviously, I go through that exact same thing. What, what is – if you have to sit somebody down and explain why the alphabet costs money, how do you do that? <laughs> why the alphabet costs money? Um, no, so usually um, – it depends on the client, obviously, but I paint it as a way to differentiate themselves from you know some of their competition by paying attention to details like this. Um, I, I like to cite someone like Steve Jobs, who has always paid a lot of attention to typography. I mean, for better or worse, people can argue about whether or not he made the right decisions or not. But whether you whether he made the right decisions or not, he paid a lot of attention to it, um, and he's been tremendously successful. So it's good, good to say, hey, you want to be like Steve Jobs? He cares about fonts. Here's why it's important to you. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I usually just you know paint it as a way to. Um, yeah, to, to show a, a really important care and attention to detail about someone's business or, or product um, to take the right time and choose the right typefaces. Um, it, it's a hard conversation, though, especially with, you know, a company that's, you know, bootstrapping or, you know, trying to save money wherever they can. And they're like, why are we buying a different alphabet? This is, this seems like a cost we can avoid. Right. So that's, um, that's every company, right? <laughs> of Actually, course, yeah. There, from I that mean, perspective, everyone's trying to, to cut corners. Yeah. I mean, from from the angle of responsibility, especially if you're working with a small company, there are plenty of times where I'll say you don't need a font. Like if it's if it's on oh, the yeah, web or sure. something, and, oh, and yeah. you don't want to buy a ninety nine dollar type kit application, I'm perfectly willing to say this, we can work around this. But I do that conversation comes up so often, um, and I I end up going kind of the same places of like this is a way to differentiate yourself from the competition. It's also a way to pull your identity together. If you want – the reason we're doing this is because you want everything to look the same and look like it's coming from you, and this is one more way to do that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's in, in a lot of ways, it's an investment in the brand. If you commit to something like that early on and you know, have really set and really well-considered you know, type treatments, then that's something that will stick with you and add value for the rest of you know, the brand's life. It really is the, the core of what a brand is. A successful brand is like 99% confidence. And if you can just stick with it and, and even like even things that have been really poorly designed, if you stick with it and are confident about it and put it on everything, it can sometimes be very successful. Um, oh, for sure. Which is – I mean sometimes can drive me crazy, but it's hard to argue with if, if – uh, I mean I don't know. You think of things like the Google logo where they just stuck with it for so long and by every, uh, every measure, that is a horrifying logo. But – it works now. People are used to it. They've stuck mm-hmm. it on everything. They continue to use it. So at this point, it's good, right? Yeah, and it can be a really bad logo in the you know traditional graphic designer like technical sense. But if you do go through the the steps of applying it successfully to a brand, it can make a really strong brand with a really bad logo. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think the two are kind of separate. Like I don't think because 
you know, they've, you know, been really diligent about applying it to things and then all these, you know, Google doodles for the past six years that, that makes it a good logo. I still think it's kind of a mess, but the brand itself is, is strong now. It's going to be very, very difficult for them to get away from that sort of, you know, janky logo at any point because of how strong that brand association is. I guess yeah. that's what I'm trying to say. I, I don't mean to say that it becomes a good logo, but it does. The associations, I guess, become good and then the brand becomes strong and yeah. that's hard to break. And that's actually a really important distinction when you're working on a branding project, I think, is that you're not – I think a lot of people look at it as like the goal is to make this be ubiquitous and the goal is to make this be easily recognizable. And I don't think you necessarily do that in the design stage. I think in the design stage, you're setting the tone and the personality and then in the way you apply it and commit to it and use it, that's where you really get the you know ubiquity and the recognizability is from how you apply it. But I think mm-hmm. that you can you know take something that's – Designed terribly, and, and of course, make it ubiquitous and make it you know really easily recognized. So that's an important distinction, I think, for me. I try to make with you know people I'm working with for branding, is that you know people might say, oh, people aren't going to get this immediately. This isn't going to be ubiquitous. It's like, well, that's right now. Let's get the personality and tone right, and then we'll handle how people recognize it later on when we start slapping out everything they see. Um, it's, it's a distinction, I think. If you're interested in supporting the On The Grid podcast, we have an interesting sponsorship model available. You can email us with your website, mobile application, maybe a logo or a poster, some sort of design work, and we will critique it on air, uh, both good and bad, which provides twofold value for you. One, you get some critical feedback on your thing to make it better. And two, you get some uh, ears that get to hear about your uh, your product. And we're going to try to be as honest as possible. So we're not going to hold back, but we're at least going to point some people into your website, to your app, whatever you want us to critique. And hopefully it's a work in progress so we have something to actually discuss. And it's not going to be something where we say, oh, you should use this blue or this texture or anything like that. But really just give it an honest critique to say, this is what our thoughts are. Maybe this could help you out. Maybe this will guide you towards a final solution. You can email us at mail at onthegrid.co. You can also give us a call if you want to provide a short little description and some context. Uh, Our number is 973-ON-GRID-2, which is 973-664-7432. And if you mail us, we'll send you rates and we'll tell you what we need from you. An image, just a little bit of context so we know what we're talking about. back to how we were talking purely about fonts uh i can't remember who was uh posting about it but there was the idea of these kind of like um functional fonts things like chartwell and uh kind of like the symbol fonts and that sort of yes yes symbol set and uh chartwell are two that i'm I'm aware of right now yeah and i i actually i'm I'm interested to hear um maybe from andy and dan about your perspective about using fonts as a purely functional thing i mean these are these are semantic fonts meaning like you type the name of the icon you want to appear, and it will appear, right? You type phone, and it replaces the word phone with uh, icon of a phone because yeah. it's been – or you, or you type it has some set, open like type, type programming. Right, or yeah, or yeah. Chartwell is an example where if you type a couple of numbers, it will create a chart out of those numbers, which yeah. I think mm-hmm. is really interesting. But I think what I'm more interested in about is the idea that fonts really are a program that can be used for really functional applications. Um and, and we also see this too with without even having semantic fonts, just seeing fonts that are completely icon based, like even like old dingbat fonts like Webdings, and seeing that might actually be a really practical way of distributing icons on either a web app or a mobile app or something, because it's a pretty low friction way to package a set of icons. 
both symbol set and chartwell i mean chartwell's been around for i think a couple years now but symbol set is is new from uh from the guys at oak and they, they both are really i think brilliant sort of twists on the the fact that you can program stuff in a font it's like a nice little hack to get something done um and it's really, especially solving the semantic problem with the fact that if you have an icon font and you're mapping, you know, the phone icon to some obscure character, the way that, you know, robots and search engines see that is not ideal, and screen readers and everything. Um, but at the end of the day, it's like I still feel like they're both hacks to a sort of broken system. Like, there should be a way to fix those semantic problems on a more higher level than to sort of, like, build a font around solving that problem. And I, I could be wrong, but it seems like in, in the future we'll solve problems more in that way than we'll you know, continue to develop really strange fonts that do things that fonts aren't typically supposed to do. Yeah. Uh, but right now, it's, it's a beautiful sort of solution to a problem that is very real. Yeah, I think the the most interesting part about the symbol set semantic font is is the what you brought up, Andy, of solving the problem of like let's say that your screen reader turns off your font, it still says phone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I do see it as – I don't think that's necessarily the solution to the problem. I think probably something like better better HTML tags or, or some mm-hmm. better way of classifying information is going to be the way to solve the problem. But I do think it's interesting because I oftentimes think, think about what – kind of like what's the next development in font design? Like has every font that can be designed been designed and we're just going to keep redoing it over and over and over again? And I think maybe this is what we're going to – maybe this is the different direction. This could be what's new and exciting about it is these fonts that um, are more contextual and they might even be based on the person viewing it. Like they change according to the different data sets that you deliver them. Because yeah. how many times can you redraw Frutiger? Well, yeah. I, I, like, yeah. I think a big argument for them uh, that I've heard a lot of designers use is, well, I mean – SVG and, and other, you know, scalable types of imagery aren't really supported yet. But if it comes in a font, then, you know, it's infinitely scalable because it's all vector graphics. And to me, it's it's a lot like the Google Glasses thing where they were like, well, we're going to try to solve hands-free technology and they made glasses, which is an idea. Uh, but, you know, with this sort of thing, it's like, don't we just need to fix scalable graphics online and not have to rely on a font file to do it yeah i I kind of feel similarly and to go back to what you said matt um about you know are we remaking all the same fonts over and over again um i think that's definitely something a lot of people think about and are concerned about um i I saw somebody i had a class with ken barber who works for house industries um once and someone asked him that question in the class they were like you know what's it like being a type designer now isn't it hasn't everything pretty much already been done um, and his response was, you know, why make any more albums? Why make any more movies? You know, it's all already been done, but everything has sort of been a rehashing of what's already out there. Mm. There's very few things that are actually new. Um, and of course, you know, somebody that's a typographer that's spent their life drawing fonts can see a lot more, uh, you know, intricacy and, and differentiation, I think, in a letter than most of us can. Um, but I, I, I do feel like there is a lot of power in the programming of fonts, especially with all the open type features. There's, there's a lot more flexibility to program, like, functional utilitarian things in that language um, than a lot of people realize. I, I just, I don't know if that's going to be, it, it could very well be that that ends up being, you know, because browsers know they have to render fonts and spend some, you know, fair amount of time doing font rendering technology and making sure that they can keep up with what's going on. Um, maybe that is the best way to, you know, handle scalable vector graphics across, you know, multiple browsers for the, for the next 10 years. That, that could be the case. Well, um, I think it could even just be a simpler solution to say, like, okay, I have this giant icon set. We could dedicate one one file per icon, 
or we can deal with it in a similar way to the fonts dealing with it where it packages all these icons together in some format that is easily deliverable. I can yeah. very easily see not necessarily it being a font, but it just being a new file format that makes it easy to package icon sets or, or, or sets of graphics together. I mean, it, that that is solving a big problem, and I don't see why you wouldn't why somebody wouldn't try to develop a similar format, just not call it a font. Yeah, I, the, that sounds a lot like what we've been doing on the web for a long time, is that we're, we've been making sprite files because we could put it all on there, and it's one file, so it's easily uh, you know downloadable and that sort of thing, easy to cache. Uh, it That almost seems like the next logical step, where instead of it just being this raster rasterized thing, is actually something that's fluid that has a little bit more dimensionality to it, like a font file that is easy to load and distribute, but um, packs a lot of punch in it. Do you mean sprite files as in like putting all your icons into one image and then just picking the position of the image to show? Exactly. I, I mean, that, yeah. that seems like a really barbaric solution to kind of like what the problem is because it's either that or a font file. You know, either one is raster or vector. I mean, I think the ultimate problem is that we have to refer to all of these as hacks, and there's there's some part of me that is always going to be upset that it's a hack at the end of the day. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It's, yeah, I agree. It's not. Like, it's, you it's, never designed a, a solution. Hack. It's not like it's not tightly put together. It's a super smart hack, but it's a hack. Nobody mm, solved yeah. this problem. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that you know, symbol set especially is a really, really intelligent and well executed like hack on the system. It's a great way to solve this problem right now without having to rely on some other sort of standard or technology from a higher from a higher power um but ultimately it is a hack and i'm I'm wondering how sustainable you know doing stuff like this via hacks is Um, something else something else happened this week i wanted to talk about a a smaller news item maybe um was you know rdo updated the uh, design of their application uh this is the style sheet of the rdo app uh, they made it a lot more minimal, sort of stripped out a lot of the containing boxes, um, a lot of the background colors. Um, are, you, are you guys audio users? Did you notice the, the change? I, I noticed the change, but I don't usually use the application. I mostly noticed it because it was design news. Are you yeah. a big user of RDO? I tend to use stuff like Spotify more um, or just download music to my phone or something. Uh, yeah, I have gotten, I have started to use RDO pretty regularly. I used to be on Spotify because they had more music, but I, I could not handle the atrocious interaction of using that application anymore. So I, I did make the conversion to RDO um, for the most part. Um, yeah, and I, it's, it's interesting because I have a lot of my friends in Baltimore. There's not a huge design community in Baltimore, but there is a very big tech community. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of my friends are tech people that you know come to me with questions of design sometimes. And I had some people that were like you know chatting with me, and they were like, they were like the new RDO design. Like it looks, looks all right, but it, it's harder to use, right? And they were sort of like asking me if it, if it made sense that it was they didn't really wasn't super functional. Um, and I think they had, they had a good point they were hitting on in that they simplified things and you know made it more minimal. You know, in air quotes, you can't see me making um, <laughs> by by stripping out those colors and those borders and those styles and sort of making it really sort of clean and, and white. Um, but in doing so, they lost a lot of the hierarchy that they had, you know, sort of established. And then and, and the point that I made to some, some of my friends were that, you know, it's, it's possible to, you know, still communicate the same levels of hierarchy and complexity with just type on a white background, but it's exceptionally difficult. And that's why, you know, very, very minimal, very sparse design is actually really hard to do effectively mm-hmm. uh, and why it's so much easier to have things that are, you know, full of colors and, you know, different type styles. Right. And I think, I think sometimes people confuse minimalism um, and or like... I think people sometimes go for minimalism as if that's a goal, 
And I don't think that actually is a goal. I think that's the end result of a well-designed product mm-hmm. or a well-designed application, something. Because um, the idea of stripping things is that you're removing anything that is not necessary. But if they're stripping so far that removing things that are necessary, the idea of simplification is completely lost. If you've lost yeah. functionality because you redesigned because you want a white background, that's not what designers are talking about. Or at least that's not what good designers are talking about. Mm-hmm. If we go back to like the Dieter Rahms principles... He, that, he would not advocate for that because you've lost some sort of functionality. It doesn't work as well as it did. That, there's no point in that redesign. Yeah, yeah and I think, I think more importantly, it's like they have rethought the aesthetics of the application, but none of the actual you know, functionality of it, none of the actual you know, use case of it. So they made a, a product that may or may not be simple, may be complicated. I think it does have a lot of levels of complexity, the fact they've integrated not just playing music, but collecting it and the social aspect of it. It, it is a complex product. Um, and trying to put a very simple face on it by just stripping out colors and you know boxes, um, I, I think it wasn't entirely successful. And I think we saw a lot of people responding to that and saying that it was harder to use. They couldn't visually just you know separate the album name from the artist name or whatever it was. Um, yeah, it, it reminded me a lot of uh, of actually the, the Gmail redesign that you know came out I guess six months ago now, three or four months ago, where they sort of took the traditional Gmail interface and just made it a lot cleaner, a lot more white. Um, which felt to me like it was a bunch of engineers saying, hey, let's make this designed and uh, look at what other designers are doing and sort of en- emulate that style without having the same critical thought to hierarchy behind it. Mm-hmm. I think that's the ultimate problem is that if you're an engineer and you see it as style, you've totally missed the point and <laughs> you need to stop right there. <laughs> it, the, um, the Gmail redesign, I mean, look, it, it does look better. I mean, it's, it's a, it looks cleaner. And just that is a, is an improvement. So I'm not going to criticize that. But the part the part where you miss the idea of what it means to redesign and what it means to simplify that's where I have a problem. And we need to have a conversation about what your goals are and what you're doing. Mm. Yeah, there was an there was an article that was posted on Hacker News right after the Gmail redesign uh, by some engineer, and he was talking about the uh, how terrible it was that designers got to Google and you know polluted the engineering process with their you know, clean white backgrounds and, and lack of <laughs> lack of borders, and I got so mad that, that that was like the that was the perception of design to this engineer was that it was people that came in and put style over top of what you did and didn't care about how it affected the user. And I, it's like really frustrated me because first yeah. of all, nothing that Google has ever done has really been design directed. I mean, it's they've gotten better at being aware of their aesthetics and their look mm-hmm. um, as of late, but it's still very much a company of engineers. Everything they do is you know an engineering decision. Yeah, um, that just that, yeah, that is the quintessential uh, example of where like there's engineers and product people and a lot of those and very little design and and what happens is that it boils down to like product vision and they go oh designers could you could you put some color on this would you and you know it, it's really just like a comma in the sentence of the whole um, like product process and that really aggravates me. Because it gets to the point where it's like, oh, can you just flash some color on it and we'll get to it? I think that is – I mean the, uh, the ultimate problem is just the way – I don't know if you have to make an analogy of it is that I think a lot of people think as a designer you're supposed to be brought into this functional white room with a paintbrush. And I would say hopefully you're brought into a room with a, with a piece of stone and you have a chisel. I would hope we're actually not adding anything. So we're chipping away at some product that needs to be rethought, not just painted. I, I agree with that very strange, beautiful analogy. <laughs> I guess it is kind of strange. You know, it makes it it it, was, it comes from um, this very somewhat obscure, but uh, 
it comes from the way Nietzsche would describe his writing as a philosopher. And he said, I used to, I philosophize with a hammer. And I thought that was a really great way of um, explaining design to people is that it's not um, as if you're building something from nothing, you're chipping away this thing uh, to, to come up with the form. It's like sculpture. You come up with a form by chipping away at the things that don't need to be there. The whole product development area of startups and all that sort of stuff has gotten big over the past you know, decade, five years especially. Um, and because of that, design, I think, has gotten a lot more attention than it has in, in many other ways before. People are starting to pay attention to design and designers and the design scene and trying to you know, integrate that into developing these products. Um, but I think that there's still a really shallow perception of the profession as a whole. Uh, and, and things like you know, Dribbble, like you don't have all of this stuff we're talking about, about the design process and the chipping away and the you know, deep consideration of the functionality. That doesn't come across in Dribbble, which is one of the you know, biggest public representations of the design community out there. You know, if, if you ask a, a tech person you know, where you find a designer, their first thought is going to be, oh, Dribbble, that's a, that's a website for designers, right? But in reality, it's actually this really like sort of shallow representation of of the uh, of the profession. I guess the 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 idea with Dribble too is that it was ever going to be a place where there would be intelligent design conversation blew my mind because ju- just based on the way it was designed from the beginning, how how do you expect an intelligent design conversation or critique to come from a, what is it like four hundred by three hundred pixel screenshot of something? Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And I know, Andy, I know you tweeted a couple times um, about the idea of Dribbble as a critique platform, and that came up um, in a couple of articles this week. But do you want to do you want to get into that a bit? No, I, I, there's not much else to say, I don't think. I mean, basically, people people seem to perceive Dribbble as a place for, you know, very high-level criticism of design and for to have like, serious, constructive conversations. And the platform is simply not built for it. I mean, it, it's built as a way to, like, show off little nuggets of the things you're designing and... And to show off your craft and how well you can, you know, make a button or whatever it is you're doing. And there's something, I mean, it sounds like we're, I'm mocking people that, you know, make buttons and spend a lot of time sweating those kind of details, which, which I'm not. I mean, there definitely is a craft to designing interfaces and to getting, you know, little shadows and highlights and stuff just right to make it feel natural and intuitive. Um, but the, the thought that, you know, Dribble is a platform for, like, critique and design is, is the part that frustrates me because it's really not. It's a platform for showing off little chunks of what you're working on and yeah actually that's really interesting that you bring up the idea of design versus craft because it it is there are so many pieces of it that are like what what used to be craftsman skills like handcraft is is your technical ability in illustrator photoshop or whatever which i think as designers we oftentimes want to push that off and say that has no bearing on what we do and it is not important but it is in reality it is important that you know how to use the software to make the things you want to make and yeah. for that, I think actually Dribble is really great. You get the chance to show off your craft. You get a chance to show off your ability to create some of these things. But the part where it has anything to do with a larger context is completely lost. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it wouldn't bother me at all if, if not for the fact that people keep on saying things like, why isn't there more constructive feedback on, on Dribble? And everyone should stop just praising each other. It's like, that's what the system's built for. Like, that's, that's what it is. So if, if that's what you want, if you want some more high-level critique, you got to go somewhere else. you got to figure out some other way to get that from, you know, from your life. I actually did want to ask you if you think there is a reasonable platform online right now for design critique, or if that's something that just seems out of the cards. It, it, it's, I think it's still a, a, a big opportunity that's missed. Well, it, it's a opportunity. I'm not sure if it's a huge opportunity. I, I think there's, there's still a gap there. Um, it, when I look at design blogs and, you know, the famous, the, the, the popular designers on Twitter and the, the design discourse as a whole, uh, I see very little, like, really, truly critical 
feedback. You'll, you'll get people that will you know, send out a, a tweet about how bad the new audio interface is, but there's, there's very few people that are spending the time to write critical articles or to spend time you know, publicly critiquing something. And we, we talked about Brand New last week, uh, and that's one of the best examples, I think, of a blog that is taking a critical approach, uh, for better or worse, to, to looking at a specific type of design. And I, I think we need more of that, honestly, especially when it comes to products. Mm. Um, and there's very little sort of that feedback. I think people expect it to come from places like Dribble or Forest, but it's, it's, it's simply not going to. Yeah, I guess I guess part of it too is the difference between the the top of brand new and the bottom, right? There's the very thoughtful articles written by people, and then the the feedback and the chatter underneath. And Dribble's based around that entirely. But do you think there's a way to have an intelligent conversation between multiple people, or is it is it focused on single people publishing articles thoughtfully written? Well, um, the the one company I could think of that's trying to do that right now is Behance, because. Um, they introduced the, this new feature. I think it was this week or last week. It was um, like work in progress where you basically post almost like little dribbles, uh, snippets of what you're working on. And it's supposed to be a platform of uh, people giving real feedback whether or not they actually do it. And um, had recently done this thing where like in real life, uh, people were supposed to go to like these meetups in, in their city where it was like Behance like portfolio critiques. Um, where you get to meet other people in the network, but also get to like have like a real discussion about uh, the work that you're creating, and like I, I could see them trying to take a stab at it, but I don't know um, what they've done with their features on their site uh, to actually differentiate from what could happen on on Dribble or Forrester or elsewhere. Yeah, and, and to answer your question, Matt, I, I do think that it's possible to have a thoughtful, you know, multi-voice. You know, critical discussion of design somewhere in a public forum on the internet. Um, I do think it's also a. I think it's a, it's a small amount of people that are willing to give time to critique something that they didn't create, that they're not getting paid to consult on, but to give a really thoughtful feedback on it. Um, and I also think that it's it's so easy to, you know, get people that are just going to troll and just going to you know throw little tiny snippets of feedback in there. It's good. It's great. Or it's shitty. It's terrible. Um, that you have to have a really heavily curated sort of community. Yeah. Um, there, there's one website, I, I hadn't heard about the, the Behance thing before, um, that's interesting. I, I, I'm worried about that because Behance has forever been, you know, the portfolio website. Right. And to sort of ch- sort of change their brand from being the place where you publish your, like, curated, finalized portfolio to be the place where you get, like, feedback, I think is a huge conceptual shift for the user. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know if... It seems to me like they have, they have to have a very different approach to getting people to publish that kind of work. Um, but there's one website I know called um, called Branch, uh, which is run by a friend of mine. And they're trying to have uh, more... I know they're focusing more on the technology side of things, having like public discourse and critique about tech stuff between people that are significant, um, with a little bit of design in there as well. Um, I think where it gets hard is when you try to open it up to the masses and say, like, yeah, everyone, anyone publish something here and anyone else give feedback on it. It's, it's got to be a very select community right. to get the right kind of feedback. I guess the two big problems are, one, is the importance of the work. You hit on this. Like, why is it – why is this work at all important to you? And if it's not important to you, why are you giving any sort of critical feedback? Mm-hmm. Um, and because if it's not important to you, you probably are just going to say something dumb like I like it or I don't like it because why would you spend the time? Um, and the other part is there's – not that this is everything, but there are oftentimes you're you're working on a project that you can't make public until it's done. And yeah. at that point, what is the point yep. of the feedback? Um, you can always – you can shit on something once it's done because 
that's you know it's easy to do but are they really going to change it because of that i mean we've seen a couple times where the internet reacts and people change their (laughs) their decision um but (laughs) i would actually say that that's actually a really poor choice and it just shows that you lack confidence exactly exactly yeah Yeah. um the the gap logo is the one that comes to mind for me where everyone freaked out and they're like oh okay well then you guys design one we'll use it uh just just give us something we can use it's like uh showing a a wild animal that you're scared i would (laughs) i would advise against (laughs) it yeah i I was like i really miss the sort of critique that was present in you know my education like as a as a design student um largely because you know everything you're working on is student work so no one's over precious about anything no one's secretive um, and, and you have, you know, a, a set time every week where you're going to get together for six hours and you're going to talk about design, mm. um, which is something that I think is, is I, I wish there was more of it in in the profession. Like once you're a professional out there in the world designer, I, I don't know if it's possible through all the you know various hoops to jump to, to actually make that happen. Yeah, because you basically have to open it up to say, like, uh, there has to be some sort of curated list of people that you can depend on being somewhere at a specific time and doing real critique like i mean you could do that as a design team internally but you know trying to do that externally with just uh, almost strangers in the community that seems like a hurdle well i think i think it can be stretched out over time though like you look at something like scrabble and then how words with friends you know compares and they take something that's usually a very intimate personal connection uh where you're like all sitting in the same room and you're playing this board game Mm-hmm. And they, they twist it and change it and put it on its head and make it something you play across the course of a couple of weeks, but it still works. Um, I think there is a way to take the, the model of a critique, which is very very much like you know a ping pong game between people that are talking about concepts and ideas uh, and sort of stretch that out over the course, over, over a longer amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have, to, you have to do it in a very specific way, I think, for it to work. Um, and we haven't, no, no one's done it yet. I, I get. I mean, I think maybe as time goes on, we'll we'll really feel the need to do it more because there'll probably be more designers working as the only designer on their team or the only exactly. designer working remotely or something. I mean, you you guys are both in that situation, right? You're the the sole designer in a certain situation. Yeah, more or less. One of my coworkers is as, as much a designer as he's a developer, but he's sort of half and half. I'm, I'm the only full time designer. Yeah, right. Yeah, because it's, yeah. it's interesting. From my point of view, it's much different. I feel like I have no lack of design critique in my life because I have like. You know, yeah, I, sure. I work in a design <laughs> studio full of designers that give very thoughtful critique and probably are more experienced in it than than almost anyone in the world. So, but but there's most certainly a time where that will go away for a lot of people. I mean, I know it has gone away for a lot of people already, but mm-hmm. I, guess, I guess at that point, maybe it'll just reach a critical mass where there's so many designers working independently and no um, reliable feedback between each other that something will have to spring up. Yeah. yeah, I would love to see something out there that did – I mean one of the best advantages of the studio model of working at a place like Pentagram is you are surrounded by such you know, intelligent and you know, thoughtful people that are willing to give feedback as part of their job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would love to figure out a way to sort of like wrench that advantage away from the studio model and give it to the masses if possible. Um, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging problem, and the market for it is, is not huge. You know, of all the Dribbble users, is a very a small percentage, I'm sure, that – would actually care about getting thoughtful, serious criticism and an even smaller portion of that that would actually want to take, take time to give it. So I'm not sure that there's enough of a reward to like build sort of that size, that kind of community. Yeah, yeah. I, and I guess it also too is the to be able to build that kind of strength of community, you really have to have something and some sort of it, – it also – it might have to come from a source, uh, a very respected designer or something. Like why would – I don't know. Designers are kind of cats, right? It's very hard to herd us into a thing. Why would we go to this new service? Um, 
if it's not yeah. coming from somebody that's really well respected and and dribble does come from somebody really well, well respected and still it's not you know, it's, it's, it's actually right they, they started out like or in the early days of dribble there were tons of people that you know were really really influential designers that are on there and, and now it seems like it's mostly people that have become influential i say again in air quotes um through their dribble presence like the people that are most popular on dribble now are people that have like perfected this like style and perfected this little like the art of a 400 by 300 pixel screenshot mm-hmm. uh, and because of that are, are now enjoying like some following because of you know this showing off their craft so often uh, and it's no longer people like frank shimero and people like jason santa maria that are actually putting things on dribble right that's true yeah. and it, I guess it's not going to go back. It's kind of <laughs> no, no it's, it's, it's not going to. It's not going to swing back. There's no way. Um, uh, well, and what, that's what I think people are starting to realize and sort of get frustrated about. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting because like the, the community, like it, it grabs so many people because it is very simple. It is yeah, it does boost your ego. Like it, it's it's got a very like very high mass appeal, which is why it gets so many people like hooked. And then once it does, people are there for a few months are like, wait a minute, this isn't. This is just you know very shallow. This is a circle jerk, basically. Yeah, yep. it's and it's, um, it's the low friction thing. I mean, not, I'd hate to say low friction right if you said circle jerk, but it's the, <laughs> <laughs> it's the golden. It's why we all like the like button. It's the same thing. It's yeah, yeah. no, it's true. Um, yeah, it, it's much much easier just to click that little uh, little heart, that little like button, than it is to actually leave a serious comment. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's you know easier to just say sweet sweet circle dude than it is to actually you know write some some serious critique about it. it requires no thought. Um, and so until you start rewarding behavior. Uh, that is giving actual critical feedback, you're going to have people that are just going to sit there and, you know, do the same thing over and over again and just like, keep, keep clicking the like button. But isn't that like, uh, I, I think of groups like AIGA, where it's, um, they're much more tuned to kind of like the traditional, like real uh, graphic design sort of scenario. I mean, couldn't they do something or introduce something like that, that type of group that already exists and say, you know, even though there's all the stuff that we do in person, there's this platform online now that helps for people who can't you know, attend a meeting once a month or something like that. I would imagine that they, they could put their support behind something and that would get a, get a lot of attention, but I don't imagine it would be coming from them. Are you thinking yeah. that they develop it on their own? Uh, well, I mean, let's not be hasty, but right. um, yeah, I, I think that if something was kind of like what you say, like AIGA approved or something like that, that, that they really said, like, we partnered with these tech guys to be able to come up so- with something that could be really good for critique. I Like, that would be awesome, but I don't think any small company could just come out of the the ether and say, like, oh, we have this, this awesome platform for critique and a lot of people jumping onto it. Right. Yeah, well, you definitely need the onboarding process. Matt talked about where you get people that are influential and people that, you know, people look up to to like the system from the beginning and then from there you can sort of grow it out to people that follow them and admire them um it's, it's interesting to me that you brought up the aiga because um it's to me at least the aiga at least in baltimore and dc seems more like uh it's it's being killed slowly by things like dribble like it, it wasn't actually a super meaningful interaction people had with the aiga it was like an excuse for them to get out of their house to connect with other designers mm-hmm. and say like, oh yeah, I saw a thing you did for so and so company. It looked really cool, and it's, which is the equivalent of basically a like or a you know little dribble comment. Uh, I don't think people, but no AIG event I've been to has ever involved serious criticism or critique or thoughtful feedback. It, it's always been sort of a, a more shallow 
connect with other designers, which is what Dribble is doing really, really well. They're connecting designers with other designers. I guess mm-hmm. that's the point. I mean, a, a lot of it is just shouting out in the world and hoping you get a, a response saying you're not alone. Um, it's just like, I just need to know that there are other designers out there doing something like me, and I want to say hi to them. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's which is honestly, which is valuable. Honestly, it really is just to, yeah, just, just coming from a human point of view, you do want to know that there are other people talking about or doing what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, and and the the need for more thoughtful feedback is you know that that's why I've got rid of my portfolio and then switched to just writing, and that's why I'm doing this podcast right now. Like the fact that I have decided to set a, set aside two hours of my Sunday every Sunday to sort of just talk to you guys like that. That's a big commitment. I have a lot more of a commitment than just browsing Dribble and clicking like, but this is the kind of conversation that I want to be more of, so that's why I'm invested in it. Aw. Oh, oh, Andy. Just, oh, feelings. <laughs> oh, gosh, guys. <laughs> this is why I wake up at 10 a.m. every Sunday. Because I'm afraid of feelings, I'm going to have to change the, the course of things a little bit. I want to talk about No Canada. Do you yeah, guys, yeah, yeah. Did you, uh, Andy, you posted this, right? Yeah, I think I put it in the doc. Um, I, I may have tweeted about it as well. Um, yeah, it was a, a campaign that uh, Bruce Mal's design studio put together, as far as I can tell, pro bono, just for uh, for Canada Day in the United States. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's called No Canada. That's K-N-O-W, um, Canada. And it was a very short video piece uh, with an accompanying, like, PDF presentation of a brand. They basically took the uh, the Canadian flag and pulled the the maple leaf out of it, so it was just the two red bars, mm-hmm. and then used that to frame different things about Canadian culture that were significant, uh, be it celebrities or uh, inventions that come from Canada. Um, it was a really compelling piece. I thought it was really well done. Um, yeah, it's, I thought it was worth talking about. I you know I guess I guess to give it a little backstory too, it comes from. I mean, there's a pretty long tradition of, of Studio 360. This is where it comes from. It's Kurt Anderson's Studio 360. And every once in a while, he'll ask um, a pretty well-known designer to design something. Like, he's in the past, I think he's asked, um, he asked Armin Vitt to do Valentine's Day. He asked uh, Michael Beirut and Paul Scher, I think, or I think he asked Michael Beirut to do Christmas and Paul Scher to do USA or something. And mm-hmm. now he's asking Bruce Mao to do Canada. And oh, I was actually I was actually totally unaware of that part. I didn't know that. Oh yeah, no, this is yeah. He's done a couple of these, and they're I mean they're always very thoughtful, and he asks very well respected designers to do them. Um, and he's and he's actually a really interesting guy. Like he started Spy Magazine with um, Stephen Doyle, so he like he's no stranger to the design community at all. Um, and you said this is this is Anderson Cooper, uh, Kurt Anderson, Kurt Anderson. My yep. bad. Yeah, Explodo, Explodo. <laughs> Come on, um, <laughs> no. <laughs> No Canada. So anyway, I was going to say, I, I also thought it was very well executed. Like, it's a very thoughtful way of doing things. The the two red bars representing the Canadian flag are coming directly from the Canadian flag and using that to frame things. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very cool thing. The The one thing to remember is that, of course, it's they definitely did it for free and they didn't spend a ton of time on it. So it's not like it's yeah. going to be everything's expertly rendered. but. In terms of thoughtful presentations, it's definitely like it, it's definitely something you can hand to somebody and say, "This is what a design presentation looks like, um, and this is how this is a really good way to get an idea across." And mm-hmm. I mean, it looks it looks almost exactly the way I would pitch an idea to a client, where you you give a little bit of preamble, you show the idea, and then you you render it onto things, or you put it into certain applications to show how it would finally be executed. I, 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 I yeah, that, there there's certain I mean, to a certain degree, it's 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 somewhat shallow and that it's it's a quick thing that'll be you know put online and and used as a short segment and never picked up again but i think for what it is it's very well done Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think you make a good point. It really is um, sort of at the, at the pitch level. This is like the first round of design options probably you're taking back to your client that I guess is Canada. Um, yeah, where everything is sort of like roughed up with Photoshop and, and mocked into different options, um, but it's not totally, you know, complete and, you know, perfected. Um, it, it, yeah, my, my only problem, it was, it, I thought it was really beautiful. The only problem, I think, is the fact that it's called No Canada and if you're saying it, it sounds, <laughs> it sounds like, like you'd be no, saying, no, Canada. But no Canada, <laughs> but bad also, Canada, it sounds, down. It sounds so close to O Canada, though. It does. Like, I I'm, yeah. I'm assuming that's where they got it from, right? Yeah, I exactly. Would hope so. I think that was probably the, the uh, origin story there for the name. Yeah. Um, no, it was, I thought it was just really well done and interesting to see somebody putting together something you know quick and small and, and simply pro bono for, for a whole country. Country branding is something that's really interesting to me because... You know, when you're branding a country or a city or something, a large geographical area that contains diverse populations, it's very, very difficult to, like, you know, nail down exactly what is unique about... Because, I mean, branding is all about what is unique about your company or your service or your products, you know, what differentiates you. Mm-hmm. And when you're representing a population that is so broad, it's extremely difficult to nail down something that's specifically Canada. Um, and so that, for that reason, I think that place branding is always very interesting to me. Um, so I found this particularly compelling because that was well done because it, it, it embraced the diversity uh, and the sort of openness of branding an entire location. Actually, yeah. I've thought about that quite a bit too, the idea – and it happens a lot. Um, it, it even happened for New York City not too long ago with the Wolf Owens um, NYC logo. Uh, yeah. But it just seems – to me, it seems like the most dif- difficult thing you could do as a designer, like how – how is this not setting you up for failure? And it's, I guess it's amazing that the no Canada thing looks really great and it's a smart idea. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But it also it's drawing from history because it kind of has to, if you did something totally new, wouldn't you just make everybody angry? And w- what happens when you design a place that has so much history and you're being asked to create something new? Is that, is that like an impossible mission or is it the, yeah. the most interesting design challenge you're ever going to get? Yeah, exactly. And I, I always wonder if it's better to be somebody that is in in that location, in that community, um, and designed for it, or somebody that comes in from the outside. I, I, I thought a lot about trying to, to wrap Baltimore in a brand. It's a place I've been for the last five years. It's, I have a lot of really strong associations with it. Um, but I don't know if I'm in a better position to do it because I know a lot of the little things, or if I'm too close to what's going on here to like take a honest, like top-down approach and like really wrap it up and put a nice bow on it. Which well, might be better done by somebody from the outside. You know, it's, it's an interesting question. That feels like really weird because on one side, either if you're if you've never lived there or never experienced a place, you, you almost end up feeling like you wrap something in a stereotype. But right. if you're if you're from there, it's almost like you only have like this certain spectrum of experiences from the place. So are your experiences that of the general public or just a, a small group that lives there? Yeah, or, or more like I would be – it would be extremely difficult for me to try and brand Baltimore in some way because I am – I know so many people from so many different you know walks of life. I would know as soon as I did something, wait, this is not going to resonate. This doesn't effectively represent these people that mm-hmm. I, I know personally that are my friends. Uh, and so it would be hard for me to, to you know make a choice, I guess, to really like commit to something because I would be aware of the imperfections of all the different options. It is interesting how much of stereotyping or how much of branding needs to rely on stereotyping and how so much of our lives we've decided that that's a really negative thing and you can't do that. Um, mm-hmm. But it's how else do you rally people around something, right? Like Exactly. Um, yeah. Or uh, we talked about an icon design. I mean we, we talked about really early in the show with sports teams and the, and the Brooklyn Nets or whatever. But um, it, you really do – you have to harp on some – I mean you can call it a cultural reference, but – at the end of the day, it's not too different from what a stereotype is. And 
is it is it interesting you guys that that's that's maybe just a part of human nature as much as we want to say that everybody's different you can't judge and you can't put a label on things sometimes we really need to put a label on things if we're going to understand it actually very often exactly yeah no it's really true and it's interesting to me that like you know the tourism groups in every city always make a certain campaign that usually the locals resent and don't identify with um but at the same time you have like local sports teams and, and that sort of brand is something that the locals usually embrace uh, where outsiders would then, you know, push against it because they have their own local sports team. It seems to be that it almost is, like, mutually exclusive. You can't have something that resonates with locals and people that are in the group you're designing for and also is attractive and understandable to people outside that community. Yeah, actually, I guess the difference being that if you are if you're, if you want to do something that's local, if we talk about sports teams and pe- things that people latch onto, these are completely arbitrary decisions. If you want to say that the Orioles are associated with Baltimore, I mean, sometimes you'll pick a state bird or you'll pick something that's, like, loosely related, but really no one cares about. You know, like, why the Boston Red Sox has a story, but did, does anyone have any sort of attachment to Red Sox or the idea, of, like, the icon of a Red Sox? But they'll be more than happy to gather around it if given a little bit of history and a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but doing it from the outside, you really have to come up with some sort of stereotype to to tie Boston to a nice little bow for people coming to visit. And how could you not resent that? Why would there be any other reaction to that? Yeah, exactly. Well, it is the Red Sox, though. I don't know. Maybe I'm just one of those guys that I'm not from there, so I can't connect. Right. I don't I don't understand how you couldn't connect with, with um, loud racist fans. What's wrong with that? Are you telling me there's a problem there? No, not at all. I just can't connect. Okay, okay, good. Yeah, yeah. Then we won't fight. Good. <laughs> okay. Let's not fight about sports. <laughs> <laughs> This has been On The Grid, Episode 1, with Matt, Dan, and Andy. Theme music by Girlfriends, which is a band, not our collective girlfriends. Thanks to them. You can email us at mail at onthegrid.co. You can also give us a call and leave us a message, 973-ONGRID2, which is 973-664-7432. Go ahead and leave us a message and we might play it on the show. Also, if you want to suggest topics, tweet us at hashtag onthegrid. Until next week.